0: This morning, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in your Bibles, and I've titled this lesson for this morning, An Authority Submitted Assembly of Worshippers, An Authority Submitted Assembly of worshipers. I want to just start off with asking a few questions to get us thinking about the sorts of things that this text answers. How can we as Christians possibly live in a culture that so highly values expressive individualism? We are surrounded by the notion that you're not really living unless you are fulfilling your every desire and living in alignment with your feelings. How do we live in a complex and corporate organism, which is the local church, where there is a strong bent in each of our hearts that resists conformity, resists deference, resists mutual submission and sacrificial love for others? And how do we appropriately honor and elevate the inherent distinction between men and women when the world urges us to blur the line between femininity and masculinity? And then how do we appropriately communicate that we are people under authority, both corporately and individually? And then, does it matter the way that we dress if God looks at the heart? And then, what is biblical submission? Are women inferior to men if they're called to submit? These are the sorts of things that this chapter gets into. As we enter chapter 11, we are starting a major section in the book of Corinthians. 11 through 14 is addressing things related to the corporate dynamic of church life. When Christians gather together. And the church at Corinth was deeply infected by notions of individualism, as we've seen in the last 10 chapters, a very strong bent towards, I want to do what I want to do, I want to do it my way. Their selfishness was on full display in various forms, and they had fallen into Christ dishonoring patterns of disregard for brothers and sisters in Christ. So as we look at these chapters, 11 through 14, we're going to be unpacking various dynamics of the corporate gathering and learning from the mistakes of Corinth along the way. And there are a lot of mistakes to learn from. We're going to be looking at things about how men and women behave in the corporate gathering. That's what we'll look at today. We'll look at how the Lord's Supper is intended to be a time of loving unity and not for mistreatment and selfishness of other brothers and sisters. Then we'll start digging into spiritual gifts understanding what are spiritual gifts, what are um, those that have been confined to a certain era of church history and those that are in existence until the Lord returns. So digging into spiritual gifts. So this section as a whole is just loaded with implications for our daily lives and not just for us individually, but for our daily lives as believers together, the corporate dynamic of when we're together. But... I want to start by apologizing for something that I said back in September. I optimistically said that I planned to finish 1 Corinthians by April. And as we approach these verses, we are going to be slowing down, and that's not going to happen. So we're going to be going a little bit slower, and we're not going to make it by the end of the spring semester. So for those of you that will be moving back home over the summer, uh, sorry. So this week, after digging into this passage, When I was initially planning on trying to get through all of chapter 11, I decided no way we're going to slow down and go into the summer on this. So there are some very important issues in these passages that are tremendously and regularly misunderstood today. So to slow down and really walk through these and have time to discuss where we need to discuss, slow down where we need to slow down, I want to make sure we have time to do that. So And in light of that, this morning, as we're going through the first half of chapter 11, we're not actually going to break for any table discussions throughout. We're just going to have, any any discussion time will be full group discussions, so we'll have a few times where we kind of pull off and ask some questions. But I would just encourage you, as we're going, be thinking of questions that you have. Feel free to ask those questions as we go, and we'll hit them as we go and uh, discuss as a full group on these. So Especially just because this is one that's prone to misunderstanding, and I wanted to make sure we could talk through those clarification points all together. So, with that, as we get ready to dig in, um, allow me to pray for us, and then we'll, uh, again, just do some, some orienting comments around chapter 11 before we actually get into verse 2. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We say that every week, but we mean it every week. We are desperately dependent on you, and to know what you would have us do, we're dependent on your word. So, thank you for giving us your revelation. Lord, as we dig into it now, just ask that you would cause us to have clarity in these matters, especially with a chapter that is so prone to misinterpretation, so prone to confusion. Lord, I ask that this morning for all of us here, this would produce greater clarity and a greater understanding of your design, and that that would ultimately cause us to be better worshipers and more and more conformed to the image of Christ. So we ask for that blessing now this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So a little bit of a disclaimer this morning as we get into a passage like this, this passage and others like it confront us. They confront us in that we don't usually hear these things. These are things that you're not going to hear the culture communicating to you, the society is not going to be encouraging these virtues. So it means that when we bump up against texts like this, it challenges us to say, will I go with what I think is easier? Will I go with what fits in? or will I be allowed to be confronted and conformed to what God's word says? So, with that said, this is also the reason we need passages like this, because we don't come together each week to hear the word just to be um, unchallenged. I mean, where our heart idols come in contact with the immovable truth of God's word, one has to be overrun by the other, and may it never be that we allow God's word to be overrun by our heart idols. So as we approach a challenging text like this, that's both theological and practical, there's a lot of work for us to do. And that's what, I want to start out with just this little handout that you have, this is called The Theological Pyramid. If you don't have that, raise your hand, someone can get this to you. Just wanted to talk through this, some of you may have seen this before, some not. This is just pulling the curtain back behind how we do theology. And I'm almost sure, I guarantee, none of you are literally thinking through this when you make daily decisions. But everyone is functioning from that very top piece of the pyramid, practical theology. What do I believe about God and how does that change the way I live? Or what do I not believe about God? I mean, an atheist has a practical theology. Their practical theology is God doesn't exist, therefore I'm going to do blank. So we're all functioning from a practical theology. But I want to just kind of zoom out and say, how do we get there and how should we get there? The bottom of the pyramid is the inspired text of Scripture. We want to be deriving our theology from what is in the Bible then the next step up is what's called hermeneutics, and that's principles by which we interpret Scripture. So how do we actually approach the text of God's Word? Then the next layer of that, with that in mind, knowing the principles by which we approach the text of Scripture, what do we actually do with individual texts of Scripture, the, what's called the exegesis or the exegetical method by which we're actually drawing out the meaning of those texts of Scripture individually then that all comes together in biblical theology. So once you've done your exegetical work verse by verse through something, you can kind of put that together and say, okay, what does John teach us about blank? Or what does um, Deuteronomy tell us about X, Y, or Z? But then all of that comes together into what we call systematic theology, which is where you ask, what does the whole Bible teach about blank? And now we're starting to get into what we're gonna be talking about today with, what does the whole Bible teach about men and women in the church. And then that narrows down into practical theology of how does that change the specific decisions, the the applications, this comes out in counseling, in preaching, in daily living, and in cultural implications. So there's significant cultural implications that flow from a practical theology. That practical theology doesn't change culture by culture. But the implications and and the cultural applications of those things varies depending on the situation which we're in. And that's where we get to two dangers or challenges, wrong ways to approach a text like this. There's two wrong ways that you can enter a text like this. The one is to dismiss the theology with the cultural practice. To see a cultural practice and say, oh, that's clearly from the first century, therefore I'm gonna dismiss this whole chapter But in doing that, you actually dismiss the really important theology underneath that cultural implication. That's one danger. The other danger is to just embrace the cultural practice, but totally miss the theology. To read something like this that says, oh, I need to do this thing, and then just start doing this thing, but not realizing what's actually foundational and what's underneath the surface. So both of these are dangers as we approach this text. Questions either on the pyramid that we just looked at, practical theology, systematic theology, or just kind of those orienting thoughts before. I know we haven't even read the text yet, but any questions, clarifications? We get ready to get into this. If we get to the end of these verses and there's no questions, I'm going to be really concerned, because as uh, as your handout uh, says, there, some scholars tend to read the entire passage as merely cultural in import, but a natural reading of the passage reveals several unmistakable abiding principles that shouldn't be easily dismissed, especially since, as we'll see, they're grounded in God's creation order. One commentator says commentators routinely recognize verses 11, or chapter 2 through 16, as one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. So at the outset, it's helpful to emphasize that what is clear in the passage is that each believer should behave in worship in a manner that brings glory and honor to their respective head. So we're entering a notoriously confusing passage. And with that in mind, let's read verses 2 through 16. 1 Corinthians 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angel's. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. (laughs) Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So verse 2 starts out with some hope for the Corinthians. There's a commendation that Paul starts with. And if you've been tracking with us throughout this study of Corinthians, this is an odd place for Paul to put a commendation. He's just been correcting some major errors. He's getting you ready to correct some more major errors. So why this commendation? I commend you because you remember me and everything. Paul starts this heavily corrective section of the letter. Paul starts this heavily corrective section of the letter with an encouragement and a commendation. This might seem odd considering how messed up the church at Corinth was, but it seems to serve as a reminder that even though they are really off base on some things, Corinth was not a lost cause in Paul's mind. I think this comment serves to encourage obedience as Paul recognizes positive features in Corinth, even though the dishonorable features at times crowd out the obedience. He's saying there's, there's still those in this church that want to follow God's will. There's still those that are following what Paul handed down from the Lord. Corinth is not a lost cause. Hence, a very extensive letter to them. Paul didn't give up on them. So he commended them and he communicated that from the gate there's hope for Corinth. And then in verse three, he starts to get into the basis for authority, the basis of authority. And this is laying the theological foundation. Again, if you think about that that diagram and systematic theology, this is getting to the theology that undergirds the practices that Paul's gonna be talking about. This basis of theology. And I wanna just ask this question, and it's not a rhetorical question, so I wanna hear answers. We're talking about authority in this whole chapter, or this whole section of the chapter. Why might we be prone to, to be uncomfortable with the language of authority? What makes us uncomfortable with even, or what might make us uncomfortable with even the idea of authority? How does our society understand authority, and how has the church at times embraced this view? So, what makes us uncomfortable about even discussions on authority? Throw out some answers. We like to think of each individual as equally authoritative. Yes, we like to think of each individual as equally authoritative. Great. Yes, what else? Bingo. There's a tendency for people in authority to take advantage of those underneath them, big time. So when you see authority misused and authority abused, it makes the very concept of authority something that you shrink back from. Great point. What else? Are there any other things at play that make us, even just in our own hearts, kind of the concept of authority? Yeah, we like to be Lord of our own life. Our flesh does not want to be told what to do by anyone or anything. Yes. All of those things, obviously, problematic. But I think we just need to be aware of those things and admit those things as we approach a text like this and know that we're going to be, our flesh is going to tend to shrink back from these things. So the first thing to address in this passage is the issue of headship, the the, the word itself. So just a brief Biblical survey of headship, what is meant by head. Um, we won't turn to all of those verses, but maybe Ephesians, just flip to Ephesians and we'll look at the three verses that are in Ephesians. So kind of keep your finger in 1 Corinthians and flip to Ephesians. First off, chapter 1, verse 22. And this talks about Christ and his headship. Ephesians 1:22 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. A verse that's clearly speaking to the authority Christ has over the church. And then, so that's verse uh, 22 of chapter 1, then flip over to Ephesians 4.15. Again, speaking of Christ, rather, I mean, this is Our role as believers, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So here, we're seeking to imitate the one whose authority we're under, Christ's authority. And then lastly, Ephesians 5.23, getting specifically to the husband-wife relationship. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So just from that brief overview of headship, and you could dig into a whole lot more passages that talk about headship, those things highlight, but even just zooming in on 1 Corinthians 11, in the, the quote from Kostenberger there, much closer at hand, a careful study of the contexts in 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, and those letters themselves, clearly and consistently yields the sense of authority. So where the term head is used in scripture, we're talking about authority. Well, source, this is something that kind of recently came about in the last, I think it was less than 50 years, that scholars started to say, well, it it could just mean source. And kind of that erodes the concept of um, authority and submission. But you really have to kind of force that into texts that talk about headship to make it sound like, oh, it's just like the head of a river, like the source of a river. Not the way that the the first century um, hearers would have understood headship. So source seems strangely foreign to the context. Con- context, kephale, that's the, the word for head there, denotes first and foremost the notion of authority rather than source. So as we get into the issue of headship and authority, Paul highlights three authority relationships. Again, as he's laying the theological foundation, three authority relationships which together inform how we think about the relationship between husbands and wives. The first is a man's submission to his head, Christ. It says, the head of every man is Christ. Most husbands, most men in general, are very familiar with Ephesians 5 22 through 23, that says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Most guys are aware of that, but they fail to realize their own obligation to live a life characterized by submission. Men are called to submit and to model submission. When addressing the issue of women wearing head coverings in the church, Paul starts by establishing that husbands are men under authority. Speaking to the young men right now, do you live like a man under authority? Your future wife will, in part, learn submission from watching how you submit. Currently, you are modeling how you respond to authority in your life. This is both directly as it relates to your personal submission to Christ, but also this plays out as it pertains to mediated authority that Christ has placed over you and providentially put you under these authorities in your life. How do you respond to them? Your current season is a proving ground for the type of leader you will be. Are you following and submitting to Christ? But then... To the young women, watch the men. As you consider marriage, realize that you are called to submit to the authority of the man you marry. Women, make sure you marry a man who is fiercely, resolutely, and consistently submitted to his head, Christ. By watching how he responds to authority in his life, you will learn what it will be like to follow his leadership. So that's where Paul starts. In in getting ready to address this issue, he starts by saying, the men are men under authority. And then he speaks to the wife's submission to her head, her husband. As the husband is to have a posture of glad and resolute submission to the Lord Jesus, the wife imitates this posture in how she responds to and follows the leadership of her husband. And if we left off here, which tragically is prone to happen, if we leave off here, We have a woefully deficient view of headship and submission. Because only two relationships have been established right now Christ and the husband, the man, and the husband and the wife. And with just these two relationships defined, we could come to the conclusion that this is describing some sort of hierarchy, or it's somehow linearizing, putting on a line issues of. matters of value or worth or superiority and that this somehow places women being definitively at the bottom, the lowest of low in this hierarchy. But that is not the case as defined in this verse and that's why we need to see the third relationship here, Christ's submission to his head, the Father. This third relationship obliterates the notion that headship necessitates intrinsic superiority and instead roots headship and submission in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. To think that the husband is the head of the wife because men are more valuable, important, or somehow better than women reveals a deep misunderstanding of God's nature and the magnificent, quote, co-equality of the three persons of the Trinity. To try and set up this as a hierarchy is to misunderstand God himself. Kostenberger says, Clearly the son's submission to the father doesn't entail any personal inferiority on his part. So there's likewise no reason why the woman's submission to the man should indicate any inferiority of person. Thomas Schreiner says, Jesus is the God-man and as the eternal son of God, he shares every attribute that belongs to the father. Yet as the eternal son, he voluntarily and gladly submits to the father. Really important to understand these distinctions. But I want to pause before we go on further and just highlight a little bit of an aside because it's talking about wives and husbands, and I know most of y'all in this room are thinking, I'm not a wife yet. I'm not a husband yet. Does this apply? How does this look? How did this look in the first century to those that weren't married? So first off, some of your translations may land either side on this because the word for wives could be also translated women. The word for husbands could be also translated men. Context determines the meaning here in 1 Corinthians 11. I do believe it's speaking to husbands and wives. The passage primarily refers to husbands and wives because they're addressed singularly and it just kind of fits with the most natural reading. But even though it's addressed directly to husbands and wives, it would have had direct implications for the singles present also. The occasion for writing this section flowed from wives who were dishonoring their husbands, but the single women would have taken cues from the older women, such that a culture of dishonorable and unbecoming conduct was developing at Corinth. So again, although this instruction is targeted at the wives and the husbands, the single women in the congregation would have likewise, in this case, worn head coverings as a sign and symbol of a general, gentle, submissive, and feminine spirit even though she was not communicating submission to a particular man in the congregation. Does that make sense? That even though the women wouldn't have been, for an unmarried woman, they wouldn't have been specifically communicating submission to a man, it still was generally in fitting with how the women in Corinth were covering their heads. So, having nailed down the theological basis for headship, Paul seamlessly moves to the critical cultural implications regarding head coverings. So we've made it two verses. We just finished verse three. Questions as it relates to those three relationships and how they work out. Questions or points for clarification that I can, uh, that we can work through together. Where do pastors, elders, and deacons come to the mix? Yeah, great point. So pastors, elders, deacons, what we would think of as like church authority figures, right? So it's like there's a category of authority there. That's not what this passage is talking about. Um, so it w- would have been not like like a direct one-for-one one there. It's not like, um, not in any sense, like the elders are like the equivalent of like the husbands or something like that, if, if that's how it's prone to be understood. But um, there's definitely just a, a general sense in which the men should be characterized by leading and be characterized by that, and the women should be characterized by a submissive and gentle spirit. So that general spirit is, and that's also something that I should just, as a total aside here, when we think about our elders here at Calvary, the elders are a team of shepherds that work together to shepherd the congregation here at Calvary Bible Church. It's not the dynamic that we are relating to an individual elder as our authority. We're under the authority of the elders, plural, which is a really important distinction. So we're not submitting to the authority of one man, So one elder tells you to do something, and I am honor-bound to obey him as, as my elder. It's, it's a matter of when the elders come together to pray about these things, work through these things from Scripture, and then make shepherding decisions for our church. It's their collective authority and guidance that we're looking to. So, Does that clarify a little bit, Micah? Good question. Does anyone else have anything to add to that? Other questions as it relates to verse 3, verse 2, as we're getting ready to get into the cultural implications. This theological foundation for these things is... Really important, because we don't have our foot- if we don't have our footing on these matters, the next matters aren't going to make a ton of sense. All right, verses 4 through 7, living in a way that honors your head. Living in a way that honors your head, cultural basis. And again, as we're reading head, kind of be ready to, to bounce between ideas in your mind of both what that headship means, but then also like the literal physical head that's being referred to here. So, in verses 4 through 7, to preface this, In first century Greece, this is a really important thing to understand. In first century Greece, head coverings were an essential way that women, both Christians and non believers, distinguished themselves from men and communicated their submissiveness and responsiveness to the authority of their husbands. To not wear a head covering was to send a variety of signals. To not wear a head covering was sending signals. And those si- signals were including but not limited to personal autonomy, liberation, I'm free from any, anyone over me, rebellion against her husband, social nonconformity, sexual availability, and pagan temple ritual influence. A lot of things that were, be communicating, that were being communicated in the first century by not wearing a head covering for women, which is obviously important to keep in mind as we get into this section. So verse 4, again, he starts with addressing the men. And it's a hypothetical scenario. It's not necessarily actually happening here. But he says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So for a man to appropriate the sign of female submission in worship dishonored Christ. For a man to to take on the sign that was the means by which women communicated their gentleness, their submission, was for that husband to dishonor Christ. Again, there's no indication that this is actually taking place in the church at this time, but Paul still addresses this as a package deal when he addresses the women who are spurring authority. Likewise, point C there, for a woman to throw off the sign of female submission in worship dishonored her husband, her head. In verse 5, Paul gets to the central issue at play in Corinth. And here's an extended quote from David Lowry. It seems that the Corinthian slogan, this is the one that we looked at last week, everything is permissible. I can do everything. I'm free. I'm free in Christ. I can do what I want to do. The Corinthian slogan, everything is permissible, had been applied to the meetings of the church as well. And the Corinthian women had expressed that principle by throwing off their distinguishing dress. More importantly, they seem to have rejected the concept of subordination within the church and perhaps in society and with it any cultural symbol. For example, head coverings, which might have been attached to it. According to Paul, for a woman to throw off the covering was an act not of liberation, but of degradation. So although this is merely, you could say merely, the external sign of submission, Paul is still concerned by what dismissing this sign communicates. To dismiss the cultural sign was to signal to the watching world, to the church, to one's husband, and even to the angels, as we'll get to in verse 10 that the wife did not regard the underlying reality, that is, submission to authority. It was to disregard the underlying reality and to claim it to be unimportant or invalid. Another quote from Kastenberger, women's wearing of head coverings is clearly a cultural practice that only communicates the underlying principle it's seeking to convey, that is, proper submission to authority, in cultures where women wearing head coverings to indicate their submissive stance. So, where women would wear those things. this is an important means in this culture by which you signal these things, but that signal and that sign wouldn't have communicated that in a culture that doesn't recognize that sign. So the wearing of a head covering is merely the external sign. The real purpose and meaning is the need for proper God-instituted authority and appropriate submission to that authority. And then Paul turns to another dishonorable option. So he's saying, like, okay, if, if a woman throws off the head covering in worship, she's dishonoring her head. And then he goes to another way that a woman could dishonor her head in a way that's much more at that time culturally understood as like, whoa, yeah, no, don't go there. He says in verse six, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should have her hair cut short, or at the end of verse five, her head shaven. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So this other dishonorable option would have landed on the Corinthians ears is like, oh, That's the category that we're talking about here. So Paul connects the shamefulness of spurning God-instituted authority in a woman's life with a shame associated with a shaven head. This would have communicated much of the same thing that a rejection of authority, and that is rejection of authority and seizure of male leadership by adapting male appearance. But it was more culturally shameful. So it served as kind of an extreme case example for those hearing this first letter. So, Taking a little bit to discuss, I want to just throw out a few questions for you guys. The first, guys and gals, I should clarify that especially in this discussion. What are some ways that a wife today communicates submission to her husband's headship? This is a challenging question to think through. What are some ways that a wife today communicates submission to her husband's headship? And then we can kind of also tack on that in general. What are some kind of general uh, cultural means of communicating submission to authority? So... Thoughts. What are what are coming to mind as ways this looks today? Unlike the previous question that was full group discussion, this is a hard one. Love to your thoughts, anyways. Modest dress. Modest dress. Great. Yeah. Great point. You want to flesh that out as far as how that um, helps with that. Yeah, good point. So speci- one of the specific things that lack of head coverings communicated then is communicated by that. Great, what else did someone say? I just making sure to, clarify, you're communicating to society at large. Right. Yeah, society at large, I mean, also kind of like to her husband too, but I'm mainly thinking like kind of what the public communication side of things, if that makes sense. Yeah, what else? Yeah, great. The words that a woman says behind the back of her husband definitely could have a way of majorly undermining his authority. Yeah. Being willing to discuss things. Yeah, we're actually gonna get to that in I think chapter 14 about talking about, talking through things with her husband. Great, yep. What else? Big time, yeah. Part of being a helpmate is being able to, yeah be there in, in every category, not just uh, yeah. being able to think through things and help in that way. Great point. Any other thoughts, things that you guys think would be means by which a wife can communicate submission to her husband and specifically to his headship today? Two that are, I think, comparatively minor, but I think they kind of get a little bit to the idea of like something like a sign that's physically observable. One would be wearing a wedding ring. I mean, that's one way our culture kind of communicates, hey, this, this person's with this person. That's a little bit different because men and women both wear wedding rings. And I think the other that's more significant, and again, very different, but the wife's taking the husband's last name is a means by which a woman communicates, I am coming under his authority, we're we're one unit and we're, we're going his direction as a unit. So I think that's, again, it's different, but I think it's important to note that taking the last name is a means by which that's communicated. So the flip side of this, how might a husband communicate or signal that he takes his responsibility to lead his wife seriously? So how can a husband communicate and signal that he takes his responsibility to lead seriously? Not being absent, great, yeah, being being there. What else defense her, not just physically but also emotionally. there's she's under fire by anybody who's gonna come to her aid. hmm Yeah, great great point. Yeah, I mean the, the protection side of things. And so often, as men, the first thing we think of that is like physical protection. But yeah, as you mentioned, emotional protection, defense, spiritual defensiveness, not in like a, a bad way, but like, I mean, there's plenty of men that would gladly and rightfully take a bullet for their wife, but who will be totally undiscerning about what sort of things are imported into the home and the spiritual impact. So absolutely taking seriously the importance of protecting and defending one's wife. Other thoughts? another question. How do these verses confront or challenge current cultural assumptions and confusion about gender distinction? Huh? So, how do these verses confront and challenge current cultural assumptions and confusion about gender distinctions? How do these verses, I mean, really from verse 3 to to verse 7, how does this challenge the, the current cultural... Assumptions and confusion. Yes, there are differences between male and female. I'm repeating that into the microphone loud and clear. Amen. And somehow that's a contested issue now. What else? How how does it specifically confront maybe some specific challenges, even things that you've heard, seen in uh, conversations or uh, heard from different media channels? Yeah. Yeah, culture seems to want to say that, yeah, you have have maleness on this side and femaleness on this side, but then it's just kind of a spectrum, blurred blurred line, you can kind of fall anywhere on this, and that is totally not how Scripture talks about men and women, and not how, as we're going to see, nature talks about men and women. I mean, reality itself is contrary to what is being communicated to you from so many different channels. Yeah, great. What else? Any other comments on that, ways that this sort of… Passage confronts what we hear in the world today. Very clear is the an attitude of non-submission. Yeah, and that's everywhere. I mean, that's not just men and women. That's or men or women. That's everywhere. Culture says don't, don't submit. Don't whatever you do. Don't don't bow your will to another. That's far from. Uh, Far from admirable in this culture, but it is exactly what's modeled for us by Christ himself, even as he went to the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. In our world today, a Christian man or woman resolving to live, to dress, and to act like the man or woman that God created him or her to be, that's going to send a powerful message. And it's going to be even a more and more loud and clear message in a world that is increasingly disoriented and confused on these matters. So just an encouragement as we go through this passage, but as we think through implications for our lives, this is going to be a means by which you stand out for Christ, just for women to be a woman and for men to be a man. All right, verse 7 talks about the image and the glory, the image of man, glory of man, the image of God, the glory of God. So first off, Mankind was made in God's image. We're going to turn to two verses, Genesis one and Psalm 8, 3-5. You can kind of turn to those both. We're going to be in Genesis 1-26 first. We're going to be hitting Genesis 1 and 2 today. It's a very important chapter. Genesis one Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God says, let us make man in our image. And then Psalm 8, 3 through 5. I'll give you a second to turn there also. And these, both of these verses might be good verses to write into your margins in 1 Corinthians. Um, I don't know if you're in the practice of writing in your Bibles, but you should be. If you're, not af- if you're afraid to do it in uh, pen, do it with pencil, but getting those things in your Bible so that when you're going through the Word, you can uh, cross-reference these things. Psalm 8, 3 through 5. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So God has crowned mankind with glory and honor. He's made mankind in his image. And then the implication that Paul draws out here, verse 7, for a man, back in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. So covering his head signaled an abnegation of his distinct maleness and a rejection of his glorious responsibility to image and represent God as the man that he was created to be. And then the other side of that is that woman was made in man's image, made from man, Genesis 2, 21 through 23. I'll read it. You can turn with me there if you'd like. But so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then Proverbs twelve four, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. So this language of being formed in the image or, or taken out of and then the glory of is language that's seen in the Old Testament too. But the point in this passage is that for the woman, uncovering her head signaled an abnegation of her distinct femaleness and a rejection of her glorious responsibility to image and represent her husband as the woman that she was created to be. So both of these things confront the the idea that a man can just throw off things that are distinct to his masculinity and a woman can throw off things that are distinct to her femininity and that those things just don't matter at all. No. They matter because they're related to how men and women are to image and glory, to represent. So the design of creation in verses 8 through 9 adds another layer. And that's already, Paul referenced creation here in verse 7, but now he goes and adds some more clarification. The idea of men not being made from women, but women from man. That's actually singular in reference to Adam and Eve. And then verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So, Woman from man. The order of creation forms the basis for why the woman submits to the man. Man was created, then woman from man. So the order of creation baked into how God designed men and women is this role distinction. And then woman for man. Eve was made for the distinct purpose of helping Adam. We already talked about this, but this helping function in his God-ordained function or task of ruling the earth. Genesis 2, 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And I think this is just amazing to think about. I mean, you think about every other creature that God created. He just created them in a day, in a moment, boom. They're created distinct. Yeah, male and female, yeah. But when he made man and woman, he went out of his way to display and communicate utter distinction. But yet, From the same stuff, I mean, literally, Eve being made out of Adam. So absolutely from the same stuff, equal in substance, as it were, but yet utterly distinct in function and and form and just different types of beauty. And it's just really cool to see how God went out of his way. He could have created man and woman simultaneously, but instead he decided to go out of his way to create in such a way that they're clearly distinct. So these distinctions would ultimately serve to illustrate the substance of the marriage shadow, which is Christ and his church, Ephesians 5, 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So for a husband and or a wife to reject this design and this distinctness is to dishonorably swim against the current of God's design for men and women. So I wanna just discuss this again here together. How does the order and purpose of creation, the creation of men and women, bring greater clarity than what today's evolutionary narrative can bring? So how does the distinct order and purpose of creation bring greater, greater clarity than the evolutionary narrative that we hear today? Let's talk through some of the implications of believing one or the other. Absolutely. Where one role might pretend to be another role. Yeah. Absolutely. Additional thoughts and implications of believing one or the other? Yeah, in phys- yeah, within yeah, literally physical makeup, and then also just like um, not, not necessarily physical, but like just instinctual care and nurturing so much. Yeah, what else? Yeah, I mean, even going further back, like the the concept of clamor for, grab for any authority that you can get, fits with the survival of the fittest narrative. That if, I mean, if you're if you're going to survive, you better grab that authority. And that's, I mean, in a sense, that's that's the lie Satan came to Adam and Eve with. But yeah, you'll be like God. You're going to take a step up the evolutionary ladder if you do what God said not to do. Challenge His authority. Absolutely. Other thoughts and, and ways that the order and purpose of creation brings clarity for us today? Oh, yeah. I actually have a question. if that's right. Yes, absolutely. Um, in verse 7, we're talking about <clears throat> bringing, like, a wife bringing glory, glory to her husband. If all of us are supposed to bring glory first and foremost to God, why is there this extra step of, like, why would, why would a sinful man be glorified? Why not just always like work to directly bring glory to God instead? Yeah, I, I think part of it is um, just the, un- the way we're understanding glory there, and we're thinking of it maybe as like a. Um, it sounds like you're asking it as almost like the the verb form of to glorify someone or to bring glory to someone. And I think there is kind of the, the idea of like glory and like almost radiance of, like the display of could could be maybe if you look at Hebrews 1, maybe that'll add some another picture of this where it talks about Christ being the perfect radiance of God's glory. So it's not um, necessarily talking specifically about the woman is to be consumed with glorifying her husband and the man is to be consumed with glorifying Christ. It's rather that Christ, as the, or man as the image of God glories and images God in the same way woman as made in the likeness of man um, glories and images and it represents is the way you can think of it. So if you look at uh, verse 3 of Hebrews 1, talking about Christ, he is again. This is like just a, a state of reality. This is what it is. It's not Christ is to be glorifying God. Is He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He holds the universe by the word of His power. So, mankind was made to image and represent God, and Christ is, is did that beyond what any human has ever done. He did that perfectly, perfectly radiating. God's glory. Does that make sense? Does it clarify it maybe a little bit? A little bit yeah. Okay. Follow-up question? Uh, not right now. Okay. I need to think about it. Any other questions or, yeah? Well, I just going to say, I think also God is glorified when um, the, the desired order is taking place. Mm-hmm. When a um, woman submits to her husband, the Lord is glorified because there's a reflection of our submission to him. hmm Yeah, absolutely, yeah, and that's not, yeah, good point. That's not to discredit that this is a means by which God is glorified, Um, absolutely, by each, both the husband and the wife, fulfilling the function that God designed, so great point. Other questions or thoughts as we roll on? All right, verse 10. Don't reject authority. Corporate worship is more corporate than you think. Verse 10 this is the one that gets all the attention. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In light of the theological basis, the cultural context, and the design of creation, a wife was to signify her being under authority. And for women in Corinth in the first century, that was done by having a covering on her head. i supposed to say her head, not your head. John Calvin says, This sign served as a token by which she declares herself to be under the power of her husband. her B, one of the motivations for the submissive symbol was the angels. And that's what we have to go off of. There's not a ton in this verse to, to base this off of, but this is because of the angels. Again, Calvin comments this, this therefore was said by way of amplifying, as if he had said, if women uncover their heads, not only Christ, but all the angels too, will be witnesses of the outrage. So, the fact that the assembly of believers for worship is not merely a private or physical activity impacts the way we think about many aspects of our worship. Multiple different views on what it means by because of the angels. I take the view that that is referring to what's referred in these other verses that we'll look at, that angels are in various ways participants with and observers of Christian worship. I'll just read these verses off if you don't have to turn to them. 1 Corinthians 4, 9, Paul says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men. Angels are witnesses of what's happening in our lives, specifically the trials we're going through. Ephesians three ten, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities. That's language for angels, when rulers and authorities are in the heavenly places. And then first Timothy five twenty uh, twenty one, Paul says to Timothy, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, so in their presence I charge you keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So a few verses just to highlight that angels are spoken of as being present, witnessing, observing the conduct of Christians. So an implication of this is that the argument for, okay, a woman says, well, I don't need to wear a head covering. This is just how I worship. This is just how I worship. That argument falls apart when held up to biblical scrutiny. God gets to decide what brings him glory, and he gets to prescribe how we bring him honor. How you worship is not just between you and Jesus. How you worship is not just between you and God. This is one of the things that makes physically coming together, like we we literally physically gather together on Sunday mornings and worship the Lord together, it's one of the things that makes gathering together as believers slightly dis- discomforting, uncomfortable. It's a, it's a confronting experience because we come together to lay down our own preferences, to prefer one another, and to honor the Lord with one heart and one voice. Every Sunday's gathering works against the privatized, privatized personalized, do it your own way, do your own thing, find what works for you, the messaging that we hear all the time. And every time we gather together, we're laying that down and saying, it's not just about me. It's not just about what works for me. It's about how we come together and corporately honor the Lord. So when the church gathers to sing to the Lord, to pray, to hear the word proclaimed, we're not gathering to have hundreds of simultaneous private worship experiences. We gather to corporately worship the Lord. This is why just... Practically, this is why we leave the lights on when we worship, because Ephesians 5.19 tells us to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're supposed to sing to each other and to the Lord, absolutely, but it's supposed to be corporate. It's not just me and Jesus. This verse takes it even a step further and says that it's not just us and Jesus. This verse tells us that the angels also are bearing witness to what goes on in our worship gatherings. This verse tells us that we're not alone as we praise the Lord. The angels themselves witness and in some sense participate in the worship of the saints. The fact that the angels participate in the worship should further motivate a desire for all of us to communicate that we are seeking to honor the Lord with glad submission in all of our actions. So, Just something to think through, and and we won't discuss this one, but how can you see expressive individualism impacting corporate worship? Expressive individualism that says, I'm an individual and I need to express it or else. How does that come out in our corporate worship? And how does the fact that we do not worship alone refine the way we think about corporate worship? Just a couple things to think through. Any questions on verse 10 before we roll on to the, the last part? Alrighty. A key clarification. Verses 11 through 12, really important clarification that Paul adds. The interdependence of men and women establishes that one is not superior to the other. Paul clarifies that woman being created from man is in, in no way makes her lesser. Because if that logic were carried through, if woman being created in man were to make her lesser, that would actually mean that women are superior to men now since men are born from women. So if you carry the logic that, well, if woman came out of man and that makes man superior, well, now actually it's completely flip-flopped because of birth. So he corrects that misunderstanding. Men and women are dependent on one another and both are dependent on God ultimately. So the verse confronts the common cultural notion that you're totally autonomous and independent. It corrects our thinking and helps us realize that we can't pretend that we don't need others. And it reminds us that Corinth, not unlike today, prized individuality as supreme. So a verse like this flies in the face of this individuality focus and it shows that we're actually mutually dependent on one another. And then verses 13 through 15, an argument from nature, judge for yourselves: Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach? What is it that nature itself is teaching? Length of hair is one way of many's of many ways that we differentiate between men and women. In practical terms, this is what uh, McDonald says. Paul seems to follow the maxim, let the men look like men and let the women look like women. Quote from, again, Lowry, mankind instinctively distinguished between the sexes in various ways, one of which was length of hair. No specific length of hair was in mind so much as male and female differentiation. The Spartans, for example, favored shoulder-length hair for men, which they tied up for battle and no one thought them effeminate. I thought that's just a great reminder. As you think about even Greek culture, where you have men that have, okay, longer hair than is typical today, but no one was accusing them of effeminacy. So again, a quote from Schreiner, the hair of men and women, generally speaking, is quite different. Hence, for a man to wear his hair long, disgraces him. What long hair means is not defined, but Paul probably has in mind a man wearing his hair so that he looks like a woman. Nature functions as an instructor that teaches human beings about distinctions between men and women. So I wanna just ask this though, does nature really teach this? You think about nature, like does nature really teach this or does custom teach this? And I ask this question critically, Because I think we're tending to think, well, he says nature teaches this, but really custom teaches this. If we're saying nature teaches it, are are we saying that men's hair grows faster than women, or women's hair grows faster than men? What are we saying when we say nature teaches this? And I love this quote that I think really helpfully clarifies this from Edwards. The emphasis used, nature itself, shows that the apostle does not mean custom. He is talking about nature, but nature in the proper sense. It is true, it was long custom which made having the head covered a token of subjection and a feminine appearance, as it is custom that makes any outward action or sign or word a sign or signification of a thing. But nature itself, nature in its proper sense teaches that it is shameful for a man to appear with the established signs of the female sex and with significations of inferiority, as nature itself shows it to be a shame for a father to bow or kneel to his own child or servant, or for men to bow to an idol, because bowing down is by custom an established token or sign of subjection and submission. Such a sight would therefore be unnatural, shocking to a man's very nature. So you see how nature informs the customs which inform what is how we would see right or wrong for an established pattern of differentiation between men and women. So it is right to say that nature itself teaches for a man to take on the sign that is associated with he looks like a woman. That's shameful for that man. In the same way for the wife or the woman to take on a sign that's associated with masculinity, she looks like a man, is offensive and shameful to the woman. I summarize this quote, nature, that is God's created order, teaches that men and women are different. The specific cultural means of differentiation vary by region, century, and culture. In first century Greek culture, a major means of expressing femininity was long, beautiful, flowing hair, and masculinity was expressed with shorter hair. Nature instructs men and women to embrace and express masculinity and femininity, respectively. So as we think about implications, we live in an age where masculinity is called toxic and feminism has challenged generations of women to measure their success by how well they can compete with men. There is social pressure on you to not believe or embrace that men and women are inherently and intrinsically different. And I'm sure you've all experienced or witnessed cultural pressure to pursue characteristics or mannerisms or even dress that's contrary to God's natural design. We live in a day in which people can even be stumped in trying to come up with an answer to the basic question, what is a woman? It's shameful to see that that question can't be clearly answered in our culture today. This passage says that nature itself actually instructs us in these things. Now we know that from Romans 1, and 27, sin causes us to suppress what is natural. So we understand that as we look around society and see people rejecting what is seen as so natural, that sin is at play under that surface. God has given them up to dishonorable passions, as Romans 1 says. But what we're talking about today, these, these desire to go against what God has said, either to, to make it sound like these things are somewhere in between, it's, it's, it's a scale, you can fall anywhere on it, you will hear that messaging. You, many of you will hear that tonight at Super Bowl commercials. You'll hear it in the classroom. You'll get this dropped into your work email box at least once a year probably. You'll hear the message, be true to yourself, live your truth, define your reality, be who you are, and a thousand other messages like them saying basically the same thing. The cultural pressure is to elevate your individuality and reject any notion that God created you for a purpose and with a particular form and function for fulfilling that purpose. That means by which you are to bring him honor and glory. In verse 16, Paul wraps up by saying that deviation at this point was departure from standard first century church practice. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. We must hold tightly to the theological principle while wisely adapting the practices to accurately and clearly communicate to our own day and culture. We all have to think through what this looks like in our day. A couple quotes from both Schreiner and Kostenberger. In many cultures today, whether women are covered or veiled during the worship does not communicate anything about the relationship of men and women. Though in the first century Corinth, it sent a powerful message. Kostenberger says, there's no point in perpetuating a custom that is no longer communicating, that no longer communicates the abiding principle in a culture different from the context in which a command was given. But I'll say that even though we can comment on that in America in 2024, some of you will be called, I pray, we pray, to cross-cultural missions environments God may be leading you in that direction where serving to advance the gospel in different social environments. And you may well step into a context in which this very thing, head coverings, is the means, the cultural symbol by which you as a woman would communicate femininity or for men not taking on those signs would communicate masculinity. And then in other cultures, there's things that we're not even thinking about that would be means by which uh, a man communicates his masculinity and a a woman her femininity. So thinking through the implications of this for for cross-cultural workers is really important and it challenges us to think really critically and hold tightly to the principle underneath this that men and women are different and men and women should act differently accordingly. So as we live out God's distinct purposes for men and women of headship and submission and as we embrace the implications of God's authority in our lives, we must carefully aim to have our conduct and lifestyle send the right message to the world around us. Freedom in Christ does not mean freedom to throw off God's design in the pursuit of individual expression. but instead, it should prompt us to pursue His distinct design for each of our lives. The world tells you that you're not really living unless you're fulfilling your every desire and living in alignment with your feelings. But God's word tells us that in aligning our lives with his design, we can live a life that is full as we seek to honor our Lord in all things. Loaded passage, a lot to think through. Again, before we close in prayer, I just want to open up for any questions to clarify 15 of the most confusing verses in the New Testament. No? All right, I'll close us in prayer and then uh, come ask some questions. Um, just for next week, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, Lord willing, we'll go through the rest of the chapter. It is one unit, so I think we'll be able to get through it all, um, and we'll just encourage you as you read it, trace how selfishness was corrupting the joy and fellowship of the believers in Corinth. I think that'll be helpful as you go through that verse, so let me close this in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the, the privilege it is to be able to dig into your word together and for this passage. Lord, we do thank you that you've created us distinct as men and women and that we are designed to represent you in that way. Lord, we're um, just thankful that you've given us guidance in your word for what that looks like and, and why, and that we're not left to, to guess at the underlying principles for the behavior and the conduct that you expect your people to have. Help us, Lord, to just think through these things for our own lives and recognize areas where we might be believing lies and where we might be susceptible to just intaking the message from the world around us without realizing it. Lord, I ask that you'd be with each man here in this room. Cause him to have a greater and greater dependence on you. Lord, allow us to be submissive to our head, to Christ, and to be a model for every woman what it looks like to be a man who's fiercely and devotedly submitted to you. And Lord, for all the women here, I just ask that you would give them each a growing sense of trust in you, that as First Peter says, is the means by which a woman is able to submit to her husband, is having a deep and abiding trust in Christ. Lord, we ask that you'd give us all grace in this, as young people now living in a world that increasingly hates the things that we've just talked about. Lord, we long to live a life that's countercultural, that's convicting to those around us, and that ultimately points those that desperately need a Savior to you. Help us in this, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.